0: Let's get into God's word. We are five weeks now into our series in Romans, the gospel of God concerning his son. Can't believe we're already five weeks in. Time flies. This morning we're in Romans chapter 1, uh, 18 through 21. Again, just four verses this morning. Um, Would you stand with me and let's read these together. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is God's word. You may be seated. It's a cheery passage, isn't it? How many of you have ever had that moment where you see a sunset or a canyon or a mountain or a bird or whatever it is and you've gone, wow, that's amazing. Anybody done that recently? Did you go the next step and say thank you, Lord, for for creating that? You're an amazing God. Well, that's where this passage wants to take us this morning. You know, here between verses 17 to 18, we come to a, what I'll just call a pivot point here in this chapter. Last week we examined verses 16 to 17, where Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, verse 18 is closely related to verses 16 to 17. You say, well, of course it is, Jim. It comes after 16 and 17, you dimwit. But notice this with me. In verse 17, we read that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In verse 18, uh, we read Paul saying that that, um, his wrath is being now revealed. Verse 17, his righteousness is revealed. Verse 18, his wrath is being revealed. And both of those are essential elements of the message of the gospel. I said to you last week, and Larry Tackett reminded me this morning, But before the gospel can be operative, it first has to be offensive. We only understand the good news in light of the bad news. When we really fully understand the bad news, the, the goodness of the good news is magnified. It is necessary that in the gospel, God would reveal his righteousness Because the ungodliness and wickedness of humanity, Paul says, has made it necessary for him to reveal his wrath. So in verse 18, Paul writes, as we just read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, the word revealed in verse 18 speaking in terms of English grammar, is in the present continuous tense. The wrath of God is being, being revealed. Well, what is the wrath of God? When we hear the word wrath, our thoughts might quickly gravitate to experiences that we have had, usually quite unpleasant, with someone in our lives who has an anger problem. Some of you are not looking forward to the holidays because of that one special person in your family who fits that description. Most extended families include at least one. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. And I don't know if you've ever seen that verse and thought to yourself, well, that's a tall order. Be angry and do not sin. And the reason that it's a tall order is that when we're angry, we're usually neither capable of avoiding sin nor for that matter particularly interested in avoiding sin. We're just angry. But the wrath of God, and hear me in this, the wrath of God is not like the wrath of men. God's wrath is his settled just and appropriate displeasure toward our sin. It has none of the sinful qualities of human wrath. For example, God is never out of control in his anger. So as you think of the wrath of God, don't think of a raging deity. God never thinks or says or does anything in his wrath that is inconsistent with his righteous character. The predominant teaching of the Bible is about God's wrath is that it is an anticipated future reality, that it's coming. The biblical writers frequently warn God's people about the coming day of wrath, the day of God's final judgment of mankind. For example, in the very next chapter, Paul wrote regarding those who presume on God's grace and kindness, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be, future tense, revealed. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So judgment is coming. That is true. To the Colossians, Paul wrote, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The Bible also describes specific occasions or events or periods of time in history when when God expressed his wrath in judgment of Israel as well as on Israel's enemies. But what Paul wanted the Romans to understand and what we ourselves need to grasp is that God, the righteous judge, is also right now, right now, on a continuous, ongoing basis, revealing his wrath from his throne in heaven in a manner that can be perceived and observed and certainly experienced. And here Paul says that the wrath of God is directed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Again, Paul is characteristically saying something very precise, very specific It's essential that we clearly understand what it is. Paul chose his words carefully. And that word ungodliness means to deny God the reverence that as his creation we owe to him. That's ungodliness. But the word doesn't describe uh, a mere matter of passive irreverence. Instead it it connotes a matter of active rebellion against God. And it is the attempt, which has been true of humans in every age since the dawn of time, to rid ourselves of God. To write him out of our story. To marginalize him from our worldview. But since that is impossible, it is then the the determination to live as though we had succeeded in doing so. To kind of pretend that we were successful in writing him out of the picture. In chapter 3, verse 18, Paul described this attitude when he wrote, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So ungodliness to summarize, is the the willful destruction of our vertical relationship with God. And we're the ones doing the destroying. That other word, wickedness, speaks to the destruction of our horizontal relationships with each other, with those around us. And it implies a fundamental disregard and neglect of that which we owe to each other. Whether it's in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ or simply what we owe to each other as human beings. Things such as love and justice, kindness, faithfulness, truthfulness. So it should come as no surprise that, taken together, ungodliness and wickedness represent the violation, the assault, on the two greatest commandments which are to love God and love each other. But watch where Paul goes. God's wrath is directed not just against godliness and wickedness alone but Paul says it is expressed specifically against the godlessness and wickedness of those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is earned. God's wrath is being revealed because the truth is being suppressed. One of my habits in Bible study and in sermon preparation is often to consult a variety of translations of the Bible to see how the various translations turn a phrase. I did that with verse 18 because I wanted to kind of get the full meal deal on this idea of suppressing the truth. And, and I didn't get just a full meal deal. I got a buffet. Now, now listen to how these other translations express this. And by the way, uh, Another one of God's gifts to us is BibleGateway.com. And um, I'm in it every week, but it uh, makes, the, makes the work easy. But listen to how these other translations express this thought of the truth being suppressed. They withhold the truth, they hold back the truth, they hold down the truth, they hide the truth. They hinder the truth. They stifle the truth. They silence the truth. They say no to the truth. They crush the truth. They push away the truth. They put a shroud over the truth. They deliberately smother the truth. They prevent the truth from being known. They keep people from acknowledging the truth about God. And I think it's interesting, if I I had had the time, this is a a late-breaking thought, but it would be interesting to just take those statements and kind of divide them along the lines of godlessness and wickedness. Because I think there's a pretty even distribution. Understand what Paul is saying here. He's not simply saying that they do wrong even though they know better. Rather, it's that they have made a fundamental determination, an overarching decision. to to live for themselves rather than for God and others. And now hear this. As a result of that choice, of that determination, of that decision, they will therefore deliberately and fiercely stifle any truth which challenges their self-centeredness, their self-serving, their self-absorption. A biblical commentator by the name of Lenski wrote this, whenever the truth starts to exert itself and makes them feel uneasy in their moral nature, they hold it down, suppress it. Some drown its voice by rushing into their immoralities. Others strangle the disturbing voice by argument and denial. By the way, the they that Paul is describing here It's us, apart from God. Comic strip character Pogo once said, we have met the enemy and they are us. Observe with me that one cannot suppress the truth of which he or she is not already in possession. You can't suppress truth you don't know. You can only suppress truth if you first have knowledge of it. And it's on that basis that Paul declares that they are without excuse. Again, verses 19 to 20 For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And they're without excuse because God has made his eternal power and divine nature known. There are certain things we can't know about God simply through nature. We can't know his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his love, his redemption in Christ but we can perceive his eternal power and his divine nature. The New English Bible translation of verse 20 says that God's eternal power and divine nature are visible to the eye of reason. Perceptible to the human intellect that chooses to perceive it. David expressed the truth so well when he wrote in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Commenting on verses 19 to 20, British pastor John Stott said, The God who in himself is invisible and unknowable has made himself both visible and knowable through what he has made. The creation is a visible disclosure of the invisible God, an intelligible disclosure of the otherwise unknown God. You see, we couldn't, know God unless he allowed us to know him and through his creation he has made himself knowable to us so observe with me in these two verses four characteristics of God's self-disclosure through creation the first of which is that it is clear it is clear because what can be known about God has been made plain to us I looked up the the Greek meaning of that word that's translated plain and it means plain. God has made it plain. God has made it simple. God has made it straightforward. Secondly, God's self-disclosure through creation is constant because it's been ongoing ever since the creation of the world. It's not a new disclosure. It's constant. It's in your face. Third is conclusive. Because it begins with perception, but demands reflection that leads to a personal conclusion about the Creator. It forces us to consider reality beyond creation. Fourth, it's convicting because it makes human beings accountable for our response. We are on the hook, if you will. God has revealed himself in nature in such a way as to hold everyone accountable. We are each of us without excuse. And when we observe the immensity as well as the intricacy of creation we're made responsible to acknowledge the creator. To do otherwise, to, to choose disbelief, requires a rational act of rebellion, not just against God, but against common sense itself. Nature holds people responsible to believe in a God of eternal power. Things visible call for a power that is invisible. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, All that I have seen teaches me to trust the Creator for all I have not seen. This is a countercultural teaching, no? Christians are often mocked in contemporary culture, secular culture, as being repressed people. You guys feel repressed today? We're mocked as uh, not truly being ourselves, of not opening ourselves up to the world as it really is, not, not dealing with truth, not dealing with the reality, living in a fantasy world. But please don't miss what Paul is implying, which is that naturally we are all Repressed as long as we suppress the truth that there is a creator God. For as long as we suppress that truth, we deprive ourselves of understanding who and what we really are, why the world is as it is. The truly repressed people are those who refuse to acknowledge the creator's right to be ruler, who live in a willful denial of the truth, Which requires the greatest self-suppression of all. Tim Keller says, one might read this for the first time and conclude that, let me back up, I just ran over something. He goes on in verse 21, they did not honor God or give thanks. They did not honor God. Or give thanks. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So now, Tim Keller says, one might read this for the first time and conclude that God's wrath comes in response to bad manners, forgetting to say thank you. But what Paul is saying is that we are plagiarists, we take what God has made and pass it off as our own. We don't acknowledge our dependence on our Creator, but claim to be independent. We prefer the illusion that we can call the shots and decide what is right and wrong to the reality that creation speaks to us of. We are not grateful because we don't accept what He has done for us and around us. They knew God. They knew God. The particular verb that Paul uses here points to a particular kind of knowing, which is a progressively increasing perception gained through prolonged experience and exposure. So that by prolonged exposure, since the creation of the world, prolonged exposure to the material universe, prolonged experience of it, they knew They perceived that there is an eternal, powerful creator behind it all. In an ideal world, we might reasonably expect that knowing God should lead to honoring Him as God and giving thanks. But we don't live in an ideal world, we live in one that's marred and distorted by sin. And Sadly, by nature, people neither give God glory for who he is, nor do they give him thanks for what he has done. David wrote in Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, the fool says in his heart there is no God. He wrote in Psalm ten, three and 4, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In his pride the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. There is no God. The writer of Hebrews Chapter 11, verse 6 said, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Truth of God and not suffer the consequences. And Paul points out two in particular. The first is that their thinking became futile. Are futile. I know if you're a Star Trek fan, you can't hear the word futile without thinking of the Borg. (laughs) Resistance is futile, you will be assimilated. And the meaning of that word is preserved even in Star Trek because futility is pointlessness. Their thinking became pointless, their thinking became aimless. See that when we draw the creator God to whom we are accountable out of our world view and place ourselves at the center, appoint ourselves as our own ultimate authorities, submit our decision making only to our own speculations, our own prejudices, our own judgments, then our thinking becomes futile. We lack a trustworthy moral compass to chart a path to our lives. Let's join John Lennon for just a moment. Imagine there's no heaven. It isn't hard to do. No, he says, it's easy if you try. I'm on the wrong verse. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. It's an accurate expression of absolute existentialism that excludes God. So imagine with me, and you've done this before, I know you've done this. <clears throat> imagine that. There is no God. Just, just let your mind go there for the moment. There is no God. We are a fluke of the universe. So then, stay there for, for the moment. Just stay in that place. How do we answer the question, who are we? What? Are we? Where are we? Why are we? How are we? You see, when we draw God out of the picture... We have to deal with some gaping questions. Is there genuinely value to human life? Is one. Uh, why why not anarchy? John Lennon, imagine all the people living for today, not for tomorrow. Not for anyone else. There's an absurdity about our existence. If there is no God, if this is a a closed system, and we're just on a little green planet in a galaxy who knows where that's slowly burning itself out, living absurd little lives. Being born, and then dying, and going back to the earth. Their thinking became futile. Secondly, Paul says, their foolish hearts became darkened. To turn from the light of God's revelation of himself is to head into darkness Jesus said men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil they prefer darkness to light and this expression takes futility one step further and, and the implications are truly terrifying the word foolish means literally lacking synthesis Asynthesis is the Greek word it, it implies a profound moral and intellectual defect that brings about the inability to use a contemporary term to connect the dots. A moral defect that, that results in an inability to, to deal with facts on a moral level, to, to synthesize information, to, to structure information in a meaningful way, into a meaningful worldview in order to reach trustworthy conclusions. And the sense here is that, that when we make the choice, and it is a choice, it is a choice. Young people, when you're sitting in your science classes and your teacher says to think it to believe in God is absurd. It's a choice. Can't prove it. We, we can neither prove the, or, nor deny the existence of God on a scientific basis. But here's creation, <laughs> loudly speaking all on its own about the Creator. And God says, deal with it. Deal with it. When we make the choice to exclude God from our lives, from our worldview, that 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 one unwise, illogical decision triggers a free fall into moral and intellectual and spiritual darkness. And over these next weeks, we're going to see what that that descent into the abyss actually looks like. What the expression of the wrath of God looks like on our spiral down to depravity. A refusal to acknowledge God as creator and ruler is not a matter of just acquiring more information. Well, I would believe God if I could just get three or four more questions answered. It's not that at all. We are without excuse. Based on the fullness of Revelation already provided. It's not a matter of adherence to sound scientific discipline. It is on the contrary intellectual and spiritual suicide. See imagine with me that that we're walking through a a vast desert (laughs) sand everywhere nothing but sand and sky as far as the eye can see. And we're walking together through that desert, and, and one of us looks down and we see peeking out of the sand a wristwatch. And we, we reach down and we pluck it up and we go, Whoa, it says Rolex. This is a cool wristwatch. And you get the impression that this is a complex piece of technology we're holding in our hands. And, and we're overwhelmed and maybe we, we would dissect that watch. We'd take it apart and we'd look at all of its inner workings and we'd just be blown away by the, the high technology that went into the creation of that watch. And we say, wow, whoever designed this was pretty smart. It had to have been a team of really smart people that put this together. And then we take that wristwatch and we, we put it on our wrist and we go, huh, it fits nice. Do you realize that, that for all of its complexity, the, that Rolex watch doesn't even compare for intricacy, for complexity, to the wrist on which it sits. And yet, you and I looking at something man-made, we're blown away by the complexity and we give honor to the, whoever it was that designed it. But we look in the mirror and we say to ourselves, you are a fluke of the universe. You see the irony of where human thinking goes apart from God? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Really? Wow. I remember years ago someone saying a puzzled look on the face of the monkey in the zoo comes from his contemplation of whether he is his brother's keeper or his keeper's brother. For what can be known about God is plain to them, Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It blows our minds, but informs them. It challenges our self-centeredness. It expands our worldview. It reminds us of our dependence on you, our need for you. Because you, O God, are the one who gives meaning and purpose to life, you the creator, You are the one to whom we are accountable. And Lord, we thank you that you display yourself so vividly, so amazingly in creation. And yet you went another step and revealed yourself fully in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. And he upholds all things by his powerful word. So, Lord, as we contemplate your power, your invisible attributes, your eternal power and divine nature let us also contemplate your grace, your kindness, your mercy to us. We who are your little tiny creation and yet whom you deemed to be of such value that we were worth the life of your son. And Lord, help us to know you and to trust you and to love you and to obey you knowing that in those things we find who we really are and why we are and what we are and where we are and we pray it in his name Amen